This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio archives. Here are two from the vaults, author Naomi Jackson and science writer Anil Anathaswamy. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Naomi Jackson here with us. Her new book is The Star Side of Bird Hill. Hello, Naomi. So glad you could join us. Hey, Mark and Rose. Hi. It's really nice to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your novel. Our review called it A Bittersweet Coming-of-Age Tale. Yeah, so it's a complex coming-of-age story set in Barbados. It's about two sisters, uh, Phaedra, who's 10 when the novel opens, and Dion, who's 16, and their grandmother, Hyacinth, who's in her early 60s, who takes them in over the summer that they spend in Barbados. Um, So it charts the story of these girls as they go from thinking, we're just going to hang out with Granny for a couple months, to realizing that they're going to face their future at home in Barbados, which they originally never considered home. They were Brooklyn girls with some Barbadian ancestry. And so this idea of going back to a place that they feel some connection to, um, but have not never spent large amounts of time in is really confusing and frustrating for them alternately. So tell us how the situation came about and tell us a little bit about the, uh, uh, each of these girls, the two sisters. So I, I like to say that um, the joy of writing this novel is to have the snark of a teenager and the sunshine <laughs> of a young person. Um, so Phaedra's 10 and really full of a lot of awe and wonder about her newfound community in Barbados. She loves hanging out with her granny. She attends like one of her, the bursts that her grandmother um, midwives um, very early on in the book. So she's really excited about being there, whereas Barbados is a real place of struggle and tension for Dion. Um, She's 16 and therefore angsty. Um, And the thing that's most frustrating to her, I think, is this feeling of having been dumped on her grandmother um, and her hopes for herself, for her summer, for her birthday, all have been dashed by being ripped from Brooklyn. Um, So she had all kinds of ideas about what she was going to be doing. She was going to be working at a sneaker store in Brooklyn. She was going to go hang out with her boyfriend in Brooklyn. Um, And being sent home really frustrates her and rips her away from all of those plans. So um, it's interesting the way you use home in this. It sounds like there are a lot of different concepts of home. And we don't often see immigration stories where people are leaving America. You know, there are all these coming to America, land of opportunity stories. This is really different. So why did you take this approach? Yeah, so I think that there's so many coming of age and coming to America stories about young immigrant kids. And I wanted to reverse that story because I felt like my experience, um, the reason why I even think of both Brooklyn and several places in the Caribbean where my parents are from as home is because I spent so much time 
time between those places. Um, so my parents sent us away for the summers, like as soon as school ended, um, we'd be on a plane and we'd come back around Labor Day. Um, and that's an experience that a lot of Caribbean kids have, both in um, London and New York and Toronto, all these places where there are Caribbean diaspora. So I felt that this was a part of Caribbean experience that had not actually been explored that much. Juno Diaz actually talks about it a little bit um, in Drown. Um, some of the early stories in Drown look at his brother Rafa and him in the Dominican Republic, but even then, those are kids who are from the Dominican Republic and then mm-hmm. moving to to the states. Um, so I just felt that this experience of being Caribbean but not Caribbean enough um, was one that really defined my life as a child and defined a lot of other young people's lives. And I wanted to write my way into that and also write my way into the what if question, like what if my parents sent us to Barbados and never brought us back. Um, so this was a safe way to explore some of the scarier um, answers to that question. I was going to say that sounds terrifying. It is. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances, uh, a little bit more about the circumstances that brought them there? Yeah. So their mother, um, it's the summer of 1989. Their mother, Avril, is a nurse. Um, she works at Kings County Hospital in Flatbush. And um, she's working at the height of the AIDS crisis. So she starts at St. Vincent's Hospital and then ends up at Kings County. Um, So she has been burnt out Mm -hmm. by that work. Um, St. Vincent's was ground zero for the AIDS crisis in the late 80s. Um, And she basically is sent into a tailspin and a depression by the death of one of her patients. Um, And so she's been on on edge for a few years um, and she finally decides to send her girls home because she really can't take care of them anymore. I think originally Avril thinks, okay, I'll send back, send for them, um, but that's not to be. Wow. So this is, I guess, eventually a, a real like legal change of custody. You know, just one, oh, yeah. one day they, they realize that this situation is just permanent. What's that realization like? Hard. <laughs> um, the hardest things to write in this book were like, I think it's not a spoiler, actually, because the blurbs of the book actually suggest that their mother dies and their father comes Mm. back with some nefarious intentions to collect them. So all the big things are clear, but there are still lots of twists and turns in the book. I think it's a page turner. Um, But so I didn't deal much with the actual legal question of custody. Mm -hmm. Now that you're saying that, I'm like, that would have uh, created a whole other wrench in here (laughs) because I never really deal with how um, their grandmother just takes them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how they just disappear from New York and never show back up again. Um, People have asked if I'm going to write a sequel and I imagine if I were going to, that would be an interesting place to start right. from like the missing person the case. missing person's case like right. yeah. what happens to these girls Dion's boyfriend is like I've been waiting <laughs> <laughs> he's not waiting for her <laughs> she'd like to think so but I don't think she is um but yeah, so it was it was fun a fun fun book to write even as there were some really difficult moments. So the mother c- kills herself, and for mm. years when I was writing this book, I had three words: insert death scene, um, because I knew that I needed to write not just the story of how Avril dies, but the story of how their grandmother tells the girls of of. Um, their mother's death and I just didn't want to mm-hmm. um, because I was scared of it I don't know what I thought would happen if I wrote about it um, but anyway once I got over that it allowed me to write the rest of the book like you can't write um, the rest of the book without writing the central um, climactic event and so eventually I moved through it um, and I think it was worth it slash necessary um, but it was certainly difficult to write those scenes so tell us about Barbados. I mean, what 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 do the girls experience there? Describe it 
describe the island to us. I've been there before. I was, oh, you it was have? a long yeah, yeah, a long time ago. Very cool. Um, and I really liked it. I had a great time there. Um, but but describe to us the island and maybe what made you decide to place it in Barbados? So this is an interesting question, actually, because my parents are from um, Antigua, Barbados, and Jamaica, and I've spent time in all those places. And Barbados is actually the place I'd spent the least time in. So oh. I'd spent a couple summers when I was young, but I actually spent the majority of my summers in Antigua with my father's family. So like nine cousins and lots of aunts and uncles. Um, and I certainly draw from both of those experiences when I was writing the book. I chose to set the book in Barbados in part because it was challenging for me, because I knew that if I went to Antigua, my um, my aunts and uncles would pick me up from the airport and everything would be easy. And I just knew that there would be an ease um, to that experience that I think would not make for such good writing. Um, ah. And so... You know, my dad was like, why are you setting this in Barbados? You don't know anything about Barbados. <laughs> and for me, it was an opportunity to learn, um, to learn the language, um, to learn more about the food and the culture. So I actually spent a summer between my two years at the IR Writers Workshop there. So my job was to research in the afternoons and write a full draft, a full terrible draft in the morning. Mm. Um, saying terrible allowed me to actually step, step up <laughs> to the plate because the expectations were low. Um, and so, yeah. So I chose to set it because I set it in Barbados because I felt that I would learn something in the process. So it was exciting for me that there was an opportunity to learn something new. And also because I thought some good writing would come out of the discomfort of writing about a place I didn't know as much about. So describe just the island where they are. Yeah. So Barbados is an island in the Caribbean. Um, It's very much an Anglophile place. So um, I think Barbados actually looks less to the United States than to Britain as um, their former colonial power. Um, there was a funny moment when I was in the post office in Barbados and there was a postage stamp with the queen. Who's the people who got married? The Prince Charles and Kate. uh, Um, yeah, those people. Okay. Clearly we, none (laughs) of us care about the royal family. No, this is terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm half English and I should know it's William and Kate. William and Kate. So anyway, I just thought it was hilarious that there was a postage stamp. A Barbadian postage stamp. Yeah. I think it must've been a British postage stamp for sale in Barbados, but I was just like, huh, it just kind of, uh, clarified for me how much of a connection there still was between Barbados and the UK. Um, so it's a small place. Um, most of it, I would say, is highly populated on the south coast. So if mm-hmm. you were visiting as a tourist, that's probably where you spent most of your time. And then you might, if you were a surfer, go up to the east coast because there's really rad surfing on the east coast and also a really beautiful um, set of beaches and rocks at Bathsheba. So the so south coast beaches are pretty chill and relaxing, and then the east coast beaches are more um rough okay now i've done the tourist thing yeah um in terms of what's actually happening in people's lives um the barbados i described in 1989 is really different from the barbados of now um so the there's a very rural community that i describe in this book um you know they're milking goats and milking cows um they're making clothes from scratch it's just not 2015 i would say that um 2015 barbados is really industrialized Hmm. and right now um going through intense economic struggle so um there are workers government workers who haven't been paid in months a lot of people are struggling to find work um so it's a much different place and much more complex than i think what tourists see when they come and one of the joys of writing this book actually was to um 
introduce some gradations to the story about the Caribbean that we get told. Mm -hmm. So I think there's like a lot of land of sun and sea um, promotion of the Caribbean. And I wanted to introduce a more complex narrative that was centered on actual Caribbean people in a Caribbean place um, experiencing deep family strife and struggle, but still coming out on the other side of that. I felt that that was a... um, a necessary contribution to the story mm. of of that place for people in America and elsewhere who mostly have experienced the place as tourists. No, that makes a lot of sense. And why 1989? Um, you know, that started from a personal reason. So I spent those summers that I spent in Barbados and Antigua were mostly in the 80s and 90s. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to write about a Caribbean that felt familiar to me. So I, I didn't want to go ham and start writing about a time period that I didn't feel comfortable with. Um, and so that was the original reason. But as I started to research more, I started to introduce some other historical elements, the AIDS crisis, um, thinking about kind of black political power in um, the late 80s and mm-hmm. early 90s in New York City. That doesn't actually end up much in the novel, but I certainly right. was reading about it and thinking about it as I was working on the book. Um, so I would say that it began from a personal place in terms of wanting to set the book during a time that I felt familiar with. And then as I started working on the eight or nine drafts that came after the first one, I had a chance to layer in some of those politics. And you also touch on some very sensitive topics in the book, mental illness, adolescent sexual awakening. How did you juggle all of that? Yeah, I mean, this book is funny and very dark. <laughs> mm. um, so I, I, one of my grandmother's friends, my grandmother died uh, last year, and her, my grandmother's best friend of, I don't even know, maybe 60 or 70 years to me, um, said to me, life is full of rain and sun, because I was really, really down about Granny's death, and I kind of was railing against the world. And she said, you know, she was in her 80s, and she lived a good long life, and life is full of rain and sun. And so that was actually a really good and important thing I try to remind myself of anytime I want to shy away from writing dark things, because I think I want to write books that are true to people's experience, which is complexity, strife, struggle, mm-hmm difficulty. Um, So there were a number of difficult topics that this book addresses, suicide, sexuality, mental illness. Um, I felt that um, there was a need for a conversation, a deep and rich conversation around mental illness in Caribbean communities. Um, I felt that fiction was actually a really great place to do that. Um, People find it easier to read about people who are not them and then they don't Mm -hmm. feel so much on the spot. And so I felt that fiction was actually a great place to write a character who was struggling with something and not um, to lean so hard on diagnosis or lean so hard on um, even writing from Avril's perspective, but thinking about what does it mean to be in a family where someone's really sick and sick in a way um, that has so much stigma attached to it. Um, In terms of adolescent sexuality, I kind of felt that any teenager or lots of teenagers deal with this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so... Dion was at a perfect age to work through some of those things. Sure. Um, Phaedra even has like a little love affair <laughs> with her little best friend that summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to, hers is way, way more tame and like 10 year old, uh, holding hands, holding hands and first kiss and that kind of stuff. Um, but I wanted to write about both about sexuality from the experience of all those girls or both girls rather. So throughout the novel, do Either I'm, I'm especially thinking of the older uh, uh, Dion. Uh, do they then start questioning who they are? 
Oh yeah, I mean, this is certainly a novel transformation. And, and which and and who that you know who you know where do they identify? I, you know, I think that at the end of the novel, they're still not sure. Yeah. They're still figuring Great. it out. But there's yep. so much change and transformation that happens in this novel from day one to the end. I would say Dion, even in the end, has kind of resi- resigned herself to being in Barbados and has actually mm-hmm. found some things to like about the place, right. <laughs> which didn't even seem possible on page one. Um, and I think Phaedra, who is originally very much an outsider in this community, finally has some friends um mm-hmm. and she kind of ends the book feeling connected to barbados but maybe with less of the everything's gonna be great um attitude that she has throughout the rest of the book even some of her sunshine gets uh complicated throughout that so where is bird hill and what is the star side of it yeah so it's a great question um bird hill is an actual place in barbados is where my grandmother lived um, before she passed it's and a town or an it's, area it's a so it's a neighborhood inside of Haggett hall which is a community inside of saint michael which is a parish in barbados mm. so uh, maybe that makes sense uh, yeah. to you if not don't worry about right. it. Um, but so uh, there's a, the fi- the actual place of Bird Hill, which is actually pretty urban. Mm-hmm. And then there's the fictional place of Bird Hill in this um, book, which really reflects what my grandmother's neighborhood in Bird Hill was like in 89. Mm-hmm. Um, and also less what it was like than what I remember it to be like. Right. So I remember going back um, for her funeral last summer or last winter and um everything looks so much smaller than it did mm-hmm. the way that when you go back to a place as a, as a child, it just feels different. So there is the actual bird Hill street sign. Um, but I remember there's a, the, the church in this um, book is kind of modeled on my grandmother's church, Antioch in bird Hill. And in the book, it's at the top of a very big Hill. And in real life, it's like up a couple stairs. <laughs> but when I was a kid, it felt so big yeah, and right. so far up, but I was a lot little, then and so it's been fun actually to work on this book because it makes me um, confront some of those things like what's my actual memory and what is the actual place so I would say the the bird hill that shows up in this book is kind of a mashup of real life and a lot of my imagination the star side is this hiding place where these kids get into trouble um so they make out basically in the cemetery behind the church um and so starside is what dion's boyfriend says he says let's call this our special place Mm -hmm. in the way that teenage boys do to try and convince you to do all manner of things (laughs) um and so dion's like okay um (laughs) this is towards the beginning of the book she gets a lot more um a little wiser a little wiser as the book goes on she loses some of her you would think as a Brooklyn girl that she would be kind of tougher, but she's oh, no. not as I, smart or tough as she thinks right. she is. I grew up with Brooklyn kids. We were not as smart and tough as we thought we were. Yeah, but that's the joy of being a teenager is thinking right. you know more than you do. That's so true. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, um, who's just uh, telling us about these wonderful half-remembered, half-created, half-real places in Barbados. Um, so you two were born and raised in New York. What do you think it would have been like for you if you had gone on one of those trips to Barbados or to Antigua and just never been called home? I have no idea. I really don't know. Um, and in fact, one of the things that's been interesting when people say, are you going to keep hanging out with these girls? Like, will you write another book from their perspective? I feel like I can't because I had never actually spent time as a teenager um, in Barbados for an extended period of time. And I think in order to understand, you know, what going to school was like, what making friends was like, how parents parented their kids, all those kinds of things I really don't understand. And what I do understand is the experience of having a West Indian grandmother who's going to lay down the law um, and also kind of love you in a kind, cruel way, in right. the way that, Tough love. that Hyacinth does in this book. Um, so, I mean, I think the what if question I talked about before. So my parents, you know, when we were misbehaving would say, you mess up and we'll send you back to the Caribbean. And so oh, it, was, really? it was certainly a, wow. a threat. Um, but I mean, this is not to make my parents seem hardcore. Every West Indian parent said yeah. this to their kids. And mm-hmm. occasionally it would happen. Like your friend would be messing up and then all of a sudden they wouldn't come back to school. Like they'd go to Guyana or go to Trinidad or go to Barbados and they wouldn't come back. It wasn't a lot of kids, but it did happen. And so it really kept us all in check. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, I think now that I'm older and now that I've spent some more time in the Caribbean as an adult, I see that less as a punishment or a sentence than as an opportunity to just experience something different. So I went to college with a whole bunch of kids from Trinidad and Jamaica who had interesting experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, and I've been back, I was just in Trinidad for the Bocas Literary Festival in April. So I actually don't think of the Caribbean anymore as a place to be banished to. I think of it as a very rich and interesting place on its own grounds, not a place that is just in relationship to my experience as a Caribbean American. American kid. And that I think is the, um, one of actually the gifts of writing this book was going to Barbados, making friends with, um, kids who were young people. I wasn't a kid. I was in my thirties when I went back. So making, um, friends with adults who were creatives, filmmakers, um, you know, mm-hmm. visual artists, the cover artist um, for this book is actually someone I met when I was in Barbados there. Oh, Neat. And so I think that that made me, have a more mature understanding and a more, um, a less American centric understanding of the Caribbean. So you mentioned that the summer that you spent in Barbados was in between two years at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and you also uh, went to the University of Cape Town and got a master's in creative writing. What led you to those particular places? Um, so Hmm. The Cape Town story is probably the funnier one. So I was supposed to go and do a master's in historical studies. I was going to do research about the history of a very small number of Caribbean people who had left the Caribbean in the late uh, 19th century to work on these merchant marine ships. So there was a big uh, sugarcane shortage and a hurricane and it sent people out. And so some people stopped in London, mostly men, and then they moved on to Cape Town, South Africa. And so in District 6, which is a colored community or was a historically colored community in Cape Town, um, there were a lot of people who were the children, the descendants of those people. And so I was going to go do research on that. And then I got there and someone had submitted a dissertation on exactly the same thing, oh. like literally the week before. <laughs> and so I was like, I guess I'm not going to do that. Um, but I, I was in my early 20s. And 
and you know how you like obsess with something one day and then the next day you're like who what I don't know what that's about and so in the meantime I had started writing more seriously and I was like I'm gonna see if the people in the creative writing program will let me do the creative writing program and they did so I just switched programs and I ended up writing like a little short story collection as my thesis or dissertation there and then um Iowa I had applied to three to Iowa three times before I got in so I was working full-time for about 10 right. years and kind of every few years I would make different uh efforts towards yeah. applying there the last time I applied to 11 schools including Iowa and I got into three um and so Iowa was about hmm six years after Cape Town. So I spent a significant amount of time working and then I went back to grad school to be at the writer's workshop. But yeah, um, Brooklyn, Barbados, Iowa city could not be more (laughs) or even Cape Town could not be more different places. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. But I I think being in each of those places really has made me a better writer because I, I think what it's given me kind of like what I was talking about before in terms of changing an American centric uh, relationship to the Caribbean is it's changed my viewpoint on the world. So I think I have more empathy. Um, I certainly have a little bit more understanding of the world than if I had just done all my education here in, in the States. There's been a strong recent push for publishing books by authors of color about characters of color, but change happens kind of slowly. So do you have any advice for writers who are just starting out, maybe um, for for breaking in or you know, staying strong while they wait to break in the oh, way you've God. waited those years? Yeah, keep writing. I mean, um, someone the other day said, I'm a overnight success story that was 10 years in the making. <laughs> and I certainly relate to that. I mean, yeah. I, like I was saying before, I work for so many years and just spent my weekends and um, nights and vacations were all at residencies, you know, on Saturday mornings, I would sit down and apply to stuff. So I mean, I think that having a lot of stamina for hard work and um, cultivating um, a capacity to take in rejection, but not make it personal, I think is actually an essential skill, you have to learn how to be rejected gracefully. And um, also, I I actually suggest taking rejection like men do, generally, which is to say, thank you for the feedback. Can I send you something else? Right. Um, And so... That's so so true. Yeah. So so for writers who... Jeez, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. 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 There's a Vita report about about this particular thing, about how men relate to rejection and how women take it. Right. Um, And so I guess my, my overall advice is just do your work and have cultivate endurance and stamina and persistence like that's how you get ahead in 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 the game and um i would also suggest i was just teaching um at the iowa writers um iowa summer writing festival and i don't talk to my students about the business of publishing until they've actually finished something so i think that if you're going to be about any business be about the business of um, cultivating opportunities for yourself that will advance your work um, but thinking too much about publishing and agents and all the stuff before you finished your work, I think is a, the road to disappointment. And it definitely does make it an additional challenge. Like in your head, you're already having that struggle. Yeah, I'm like, that struggle will show up. Don't invite it in early. (laughs) Struggle with the characters, (laughs) struggle with the work, struggle with your writing, struggle with um, figuring out how to support your, get your community of support, your partners, your family, your friends on board around your life as a writer. Do that struggle. Don't invite other struggle before it's even there. 
That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And what are you working on now, other than promoting this book? You said you just did a, a big tour to... Yeah, yeah. Um, so you guys are getting me when I'm in New York City and feeling good about being home, which is a good time <laughs> to be talking to me. Oh, good. Um, but although I've had a really fantastic um, tour to Iowa, all around the Martha's Vineyard and Massachusetts, and this past week to Philly and to D.C. Um, so I'm really grateful for all the people who came out and for the privilege of being able to promote my book full-time. It's not a small thing to be able to dedicate your life in this way to that. Yeah, that's true. That's it's great. huge. Yeah. I, I don't I don't take it for granted that I can do this. Right. Um, and so in terms of my next project, I'm working on a couple things. I have a novel that's called Behind God's Back. That's the tentative title. And it's a multi-generational family saga set in New York about a Caribbean American family that does come to America. Um, and it's uh, set in the early 1930s up to the, the mm. 2000s. So it's a much bigger scope than the two months that I spend with right. these girls um, in the star side of Bird Hill. And I'm also working on a screenplay adaptation of one of my short stories, Ladies. So, yeah. Nice. Wait, how did the screenplay adaptation come out, come about? Did that just... It of... actually came out from my summer I spent in Barbados. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, one of the people who I met when I was down there was a filmmaker. Her name's Lisa Harewood, and she's based in Barbados. And she is a fan of my work. I kind of, I like to call her my Bayesian tiger mom. Um, and so um, she was really excited about a couple of the projects I was working on. But one of the projects she really loved is a short story called Ladies. It's set at a teacher's college in Jamaica in the 70s and in Brooklyn. It's a love story about two women who fall in love in um, Jamaica and then are reunited in Brooklyn. And so Lisa loved the story and really wanted to move forward with a screenplay adaptation and a film version, either short or feature. We're still figuring it out. Um, but yeah, that was one of the gifts that came out of that time. She was on um, on doing location scouting for her first a short film and so I would ride around Barbados in Lisa's car I was her shotgun buddy for all a lot of those rides and that's where I really figured out a lot about the landscape of Barbados and now we have a film project out of it Wow, that's so exciting. Mm-hmm. What a what a great collaborative opportunity. Yeah, I got lucky. I got lucky. <laughs> and you mentioned finding your cover artist there too. Have there been other authors, artists, creative folks who you've kind of collaborated with? Yeah, I just wrote about um about this for poets and writers. Um so they asked me to write something for their like writers recommend series and I was like, What do I say? Use a good pen. Um <laughs> <laughs> be good about rejection and that's like actually collaborating with visual artists because um one of the things that has i think really sold this book is the cover it's fantastic it's dynamic it's colorful um i think it's the kind of thing that people walk into the store and they're like they want to pick it up and say Mm. what's this and so um the cover artist's name is sheena rose and she'll actually be with me tomorrow at or saturday at the brooklyn museum um doing a target first saturdays book club program at the brooklyn museum so that'll be fun and sheena is actually in town. She just got back from Barbados, so she's going to talk a little bit during that event about the book cover. Um, so Sheena's one of the most obvious collaborations, Lisa Harewood, for this film project. Um, a friend of mine's name is Wada Natasha Gunji, and she's a visual artist. Um, I was in one of her performance pieces called 100 Black Women, 100 Actions um, in Austin. Um, a friend of mine, Simone Lee, did the Creative Time Project called the Free People's Medical Clinic. I don't know if you guys got it, had a chance to see it, but it was in Beth Die all the series of lots of amazing events last fall. So I wrote for the Waiting Room magazine about hmm. actually mental illness in Caribbean communities, uh-huh. kind of the same same stuff, but from a different right. perspective. So 
I heart visual artists. My partner is a photographer. She's the one who did my headshot um, and is, takes all my photographs. Um, and so I think I even have that. I just think about visual art, I think, more than the average right. bear. Um, it's part of my home life um, right. and part of my work life now. But thanks for asking. Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds like just a wonderful set of opportunities. Yeah. We've been talking with Naomi Jackson, and you can find her book, The Star Side of Bird Hill, in stores right now. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Don't go away. We've got another great interview from the archives coming up right after this break. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Anil Anantaswamy on the line. His new book is The Man Who Wasn't There. Anil, I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, Rose, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about the book, about the, the concept behind it, and how you arrived at that concept. So um, the book, as you said, it's about uh, the investigations into the science of the self. Um, and the concept behind the book is to ex- examine what neuroscience is telling about our sense of self by looking at various uh, neurological, neuropsychological conditions that uh, disturb the self in some way. What, what I mean by that is uh, it changes how one feels about oneself. So uh, by looking at these various conditions, each of which um, kind of alter the self in a particular way, in a different way, um, the the idea is to get a sense for how the brain might construct the self uh, in the first place and then to get a sort of a neuroscientific understanding of what might be happening in the brain and body to give us uh, the self that we are. Um, and you were asking about uh, how the idea came about. I mean, I've been interested in questions about the self for a, a very long time, since my late 20s, I think. And uh, part of it could be just that uh, growing up in India where the major religions uh, are kind of obsessed with uh, answering the question, who am I? Um, their theologies kind of stem from their, un- their own particular answers to that question about the nature of the self. So it's possibly something in my cultural DNA that kind of uh, egged me to, uh, you know, to start looking at this subject. And um, as a writer, I was kind of looking for a new... Uh, and more and a illuminative way of uh, tackling this subject because there are already so many uh, lovely good books on the subject uh, each of them coming at it from a different perspective so uh, and when i found um that when i discovered that i could kind of take uh, an approach that uh, allowed us to examine the self by looking at uh, disturbances of the self it it all started to make sense as a as a book so our our starred review of the book says that you explore the uncomfortable aberrations that reveal what it is to be human. So how do you do that? How do you define this sort of negative space of the self by looking at uh, what we think of as abnormalities? I mean, I think one of the things that happened to me as I was writing the book is uh, you know, I, I stopped thinking of uh, conditions as uh, abnormalities or disorders in, in some sense because... You know, when you when you think of being human, um, you know, being human is in some sense a condition. It, it's something we are, and uh, and then if you have Alzheimer's, if you have schizophrenia, uh, if you are suffering from autism, that's also 
being human. It's just uh, you know a different way of being human. And so, in some sense, um, I mean, this is not to belittle uh, or, or 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 lessen the suffering that some of these conditions entail. Uh, I'm not saying that, but in some sense, uh, what it tells us is that there's always someone experiencing. Uh, the conditions of schizophrenia. There's always someone experiencing the conditions of autism, and and which you know I, I kind of uh, now feel like we just need to think of these things as all aspects of one's self, and and you know we just happen to be the self we are given uh, through a combination of our genetics, our our environment, our society, culture, etc., and uh, and we deal with that the best we can and even being human uh, you know in, in all its normality is also something you have to deal with somehow and uh, and that's what it and that's what it came down to me uh, eventually and so in terms of looking at uh, you know the nature of the self by looking at how the self might change in certain situations it's not dissimilar to how neuroscience is understood um, brain function you know when you think about how much we've learned about the brain by looking at uh, situations where people have had some sort of uh, traumatic injury to the brain or the stroke um, and consequently lost some functionality. We've been able to correlate the loss of functionality with the damage and and understood sort of anatomically, physiologically what might be happening. Um, And in some sense, the self, you know, you can think of it in in, in the same way where normally when we think about ourselves, we feel like it is some monolithic entity uh, that uh, feels solid to us. But actually, in in certain situations, uh, some aspects of the self can dissociate and they can come apart. And by looking at uh, situations where that happens, you kind of start getting uh, an understanding that actually it's a process in the brain. There are various processes in the brain that actually brain and body put together. So, uh, you know, when I often, when I just say brain, implicitly in my mind I'm thinking it's the brain-body complex. Um, There are various processes that have to work hard all the time uh, to give us this kind of sense of being a unity, a a self that is, you know, solid. But actually, um, these are ongoing processes that are always at work. And so like any other physiological process, it can be disrupted. Exactly, exactly. And then it, it happens. And it, it, you, you don't even have to look at extreme conditions. You know, you just in the course of a day or, or a week or a month, we will have situations where we feel different and, and something seems amiss or, and, uh, you know, or you feel depressed for whatever reason. And that changes how you feel. And all of these things are clues to the fact that this is a process and that, that uh, you know, things Things can uh, go one way or the other, uh, depending on circumstances, external, internal, and, uh, and, and change your sense of self. So medical science works uh, in sort of groups and generalizations. You can put a set of symptoms together and call it a syndrome. Um, but the sense of self is so individual and, as you say, so mutable in some ways. So how do you approach this from a, from a scientific perspective or a medical perspective? I think that's the that's the challenge. In some sense, in in order to ask questions about the self, you really have to pay attention to the individual. You really have to understand what it is like to be someone, and whether you're talking of just uh, an ordinary individual or someone, say, 
who is suffering from Alzheimer's or, uh, you know, it's important to get a sense of what it is from within because that subjective experience is really crucial to figuring out what's happening. It, it's impossible to objectively, you know, look at brain scans or the physiology and say, oh, this is how the person must be feeling. It's, you know, we can't do that. So in some sense, the individual is really important, and yet you need to do the, the kind of medical studies that you would on, on a cohort of patients to kind of understand uh, what might be happening in the brain and the body to give rise to each individual's subjective experience. And uh, who are some of the most interesting people that you interviewed for this? Because you did take a very individual approach. I did. I mean, uh, <clears throat> in terms of the conditions, uh, you know, one of the most uh, intriguing one for me was uh, ecstatic epilepsy. Uh, now, when we normally think of an epileptic seizure, uh, what comes to mind is people losing consciousness, and, and that's usually the grand mal seizure that, completely overwhelms the cortex and and people do lose consciousness and it's really quite dangerous. Um, the epilepsy that I was looking at is something that is called a focal seizure, which means it's restricted to a small region of the brain, doesn't spread across the entire cortex. And, uh, and in this particular case, the, this seizure uh, doesn't knock you unconscious. You're completely aware. And, uh, and what was... Uh, uh, very intriguing about the description of what one feels like when you're having a seizure is the people that I spoke to talked about how it made them feel uh, well and, and, and joyous and blissful. There, there are feelings of mental and physical well-being, um, a feeling that time slows down somehow. The seizure itself may have lasted just a second or two, um, but for them, while they were experiencing it, it, it seemed like much more time had passed. Uh, the other thing that seems to happen is, uh, you know, the person would say that they feel their own body state and, you know, and, and the environment around them in terms of the, the colors and the sounds much more vividly than you would otherwise. It's as if one person I remember told me that it's as if some, you know, you suddenly started seeing things in 3D, hmm. which until before that, before the seizure, uh, you know, it would have felt like 2D. I mean, of course, even before you were seeing it in 2D, you was just using kind of a, um, a way of expressing how intense and how vivid your perception becomes during the seizure. It's almost like everything suddenly popped into, you know, high def. And uh, and the other thing that, that's very paradoxical, even though you're feeling your environment and your sensations really vividly, you also kind of feel as if some boundary between yourself and the outside world has disappeared and, and, and leads to a feeling of oneness with something larger. Uh, which then prompts questions about, oh, you know, the feeling of is in being in the presence of God and things like that. So uh, when you hear people talk about what this feels like, you're almost struck by the similarities between these descriptions and the descriptions that mystics have about, you know, their mystical experiences. Um, I'm not equating the two. I'm just saying that they, they sound extremely similar. Um, so I think this particular, you know, um, the people that I met who discussed their ecstatic epilepsy experiences were really illuminating. I think there's something um, quite striking about what they feel when they're uh, in the throes of the seizure. So the the title of the book, 
the man who wasn't there comes from this poem Antigonish by Hughes Marins. Uh, and that poem was, was originally written about a man who's dealing with a ghost. Uh, the man who wasn't there is, is persecuting him, is hounding him. And he, he says, you know, I, I wish that he would go away. Um, and I feel like you're taking this from the other perspective, from the perspective of the man who wasn't there. You're interviewing people whose sense of, of self might be ghostly or, or uh, outside of what most people expect. And so I was wondering if they have experienced a sense of, of rejection of being told, you know, we don't like the way that you are not there. Go away. Stop bothering us with your strange sense of self. No, um, I don't think they felt necessarily rejected. I think the title, uh, the, the way uh, we arrived at it, it kind of refers to certain aspects of the self that actually do go away when you're suffering from, say, Alzheimer's. Um, you know, Alzheimer's uh, eats away at your narrative self, the story that we are and the stories that we are, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, the stories that we tell others about who we are. All, and all the stories, that narrative is completely dependent on our memories, our being able to recall, you know, what happened to us, being able to imagine what might happen to us. Uh, and it's a coherent narrative that's in our heads, and Alzheimer's uh, slowly destroys that. And uh, so in some sense, uh, some aspect of you does go away. It also refers to, in some sense, uh, Cotard syndrome, where someone is saying that I don't exist, even though... Uh, you know, uh, the person is uh, alive, um, doing all the things that uh, a person who's alive would be doing, eating, sleeping, drinking, etc. Um, but somehow they perceive themselves to not exist. And uh, so in, in in ways, and you brought up this ghostly thing, uh, you know, there's a whole chapter on uh, what are called autoscopic phenomena, where people actually perceive a double, for instance, this so-called doppelganger effect, where you perceive another you in front of you, and you have an interaction with that doppelganger. Uh, it's still you, and um, and in in some sense, uh, it also it can also refer to that uh, ghostly image of yourself. That man, that person is not really there, but you nonetheless perceive and interact with that person. And all of these conditions are really telling us something about the experience of being a self by looking at, you know, situations where the self is being disrupted. And how comfortable are the people you talked with, uh, uh, how comfortable are they with their altered senses of self? I mean, I, I read the piece that you did for Matter on uh, people who want to amputate limbs that from the outside appear perfectly healthy. Uh, yeah. And they all seemed to feel so glad and so satisfied when they were able to indulge this urge, get the amputation. They felt better and happier within themselves. Uh, is is that a pretty a pretty typical thing that people feel comfortable with who they are even even though it may not be who they expected to be it really depends at what stage of their uh, suffering you are talking to them uh, i mean you know in the case of uh, body integrity identity disorder this one person that i write about you know before he got his amputation he was definitely suffering mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he wanted his the leg that didn't feel like his uh, taken away and uh, so but afterwards he did say that he felt fine I and mean, he was happy now that uh, this leg that wasn't his was gone 
Um, I wouldn't say that the same is true for other conditions where, you know, if, if someone is suffering from schizophrenia or autism or, um, you know, conditions that, depending on the severity of the condition, the suffering can be quite quite extreme. Uh, so uh, it's I wouldn't say that they are comfortable with who they are. I mean, you know, by because they are able to talk to me about what they are going through, they're, they're already people who are somewhat able to introspect and have a handle on what's happening to them. Um, so in some sense, their condition may not be as severe as it can get in other people. And if, the, if schizophrenia is very severe, for instance, your sense of your reality is so badly altered that the, the suffering is quite intense. So I wouldn't say that they would be comfortable with, with that at all. It is just too debilitating. So the same thing goes for something like depersonalization disorder. I, I know the people that I talk to um, and the people I've read about, I think it's quite distressing to feel like you're not connected to your body, that your emotions uh, don't feel like yours, and uh, that somehow everything about you and your environment feels unreal. Um, that uh, Having that all the time is very, very hard to deal with. So you know, the, the only condition that I would say where people were fine with it would be ecstatic epilepsy. As long as that epilepsy doesn't turn into something you know, like a grand mal seizure and then knocks them unconscious, if it just remains at the stage of an ecstatic aura, um, they are fine because because the experience of it is so blissful and so joyous. But uh, in almost every other case, uh, these are these are these can be severe conditions. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Anil Anantaswamy, who's the author of The Man Who Wasn't There. So um, you've been using the word suffering a lot, it's, which is coming at this from a very compassionate place. Um, and and I was wondering what the options are for treatment or for healing or amelioration uh, for some of these conditions when they reach the point where someone really is suffering and having a hard time? I think, again, it depends on the severity of the conditions. You know, sometimes uh, pharmacological interventions uh, are necessary um, and, you know, to deal with what might be happening. Um, like, for instance, Cotard syndrome, where people uh, say they don't exist, that's uh, the, it's comorbid with depression. Uh, people with Cotards can be extremely depressed, uh, sometimes uh, even more severely than what we normally associate with clinical depression. So, in that situation, uh, uh, you know, like the, the the French psychiatrist that I talked to, who have seen there are two people that I talked to in Paris who have seen quite a few patients with Cotards. Uh, they have resorted to ECT, electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy. Um, and, um, you know, it can take something like that to uh, help the person recover from you know, the condition that they're in. Um, if it's 
not very severe, then I would imagine there are other ways, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapies or talk therapy. There must be a whole range of things that can be done. In a sense, you have to recognize that if it is a perturbation of the self, um, you know, then one way of looking at it is the self is itself uh, uh, a product of the way the brain functions, the way the body functions, how we interact with um, our families, our society, the broader culture, you know, everything is influencing uh, how one feels about oneself or what one is. And consequently, therapies uh, or anything that we do to help someone recover or, or, or come to terms with what's happening needs to account for this multifaceted uh, aspect of the self. And, uh, and I would imagine the therapist would be aware of that and they would be dealing with it and so a purely pharmacological thing uh, uh, approach uh, may not work may not even be necessary your first book was the edge of physics in which you talked about traveling the world to visit telescopes and detectors that are aimed at the the deepest parts of space so how did you get from studying outer space to studying inner space (laughs) um I, I think the the impulse is the same. It, it was just curiosity that was driving me when I was doing the first book. Just uh, because when you think of the questions that uh, you know, physicists at the very edge of their understanding are asking, because you know cosmology or astronomy, it's it's somewhat similar in the sense that they they are also concerned about you know where we come from, where we're going, what will happen to us, but in a much more um, sort of detached way. It's not a personal thing. It's not about one's individual self, but something larger. It's about existence of this whole thing we call humanity and the universe. It's not just uh, us there. So I think for me, the you know, it was still the same desire to understand what science is doing to get to these answers. And my physics book is actually bookended by visits to two monasteries. Uh, the, it opens with uh, a chapter where I visit a silent Christian monastery um, in California, and it ends with uh, a visit to Ladakh in the Indian Himalayas, where there was a 400-year-old Buddhist monastery. And I, I wrote about those two monasteries as metaphors because I felt like what the monks are doing at these mountaintops, kind of looking inward and trying to understand their own self and hence the nature of being human, um, was not that different from astronomers sitting at those very mountaintops pointing their telescopes outwards. Um, so in, in the physics book, it was just a metaphor. I, I wasn't trying to make any link between what physics does and what uh, monks do you know, in terms of their findings. Um, but it kind of naturally led me to the other side of the coin is this internal journey that we are also taking all the time, trying to figure out who we are, but from a very personal uh, perspective. So uh, in my mind, um, it doesn't feel like a big leap, even though I can see from the outside that you know one is physics, the other is neuroscience. But my, for me, the journey seems very uh, logical. You teach science writing both at UC Santa Cruz, uh, which you attended as a student, and uh, also at the National Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore. How similar are those two teaching experiences? It sounds like you do a lot of sort of moving between continents. I do move move a lot between continents. The teaching at UC Santa Cruz is very specific. I I teach uh, a module uh, about writing 
book proposal. So yeah, mm. to get to get students to start thinking about writing books as a, a career option, as something that they can plan for, you know, once they graduate. So it's a very specific, very uh, uh, small module that I teach there. Um, the one, um, the the thing I teach in Bangalore, India, is a more full-fledged uh, sort of intensive workshop on the basics of science journalism, which is news and features, feature writing. Uh, I teach, I co-teach it with a couple of my colleagues who join me during those uh, two, three weeks. Um, so one of the things that uh, uh, is very um, sort of obvious when you move back and forth, especially between cultures that can be so different, like India and the U.S., is uh, your sense of uh, being an individual can uh, can change. In India is uh, uh, much more collectivist, much more uh, or less individualistic society than uh, than the U.S. Uh, and uh, and I'm not saying one is better than the other or anything. It's just uh, that's how they are. Uh, but you know, you feel different uh, depending on where you are because you know yourself adapts in some sense to the larger environment that you're in. And if you move back and forth uh, a lot, you you can feel those boundaries shift and change. And uh, it tells you a little bit about you know how our self is constructed. That's fascinating. I think it's the thing that a lot of people do without even thinking about it. Just maybe the language that you're using around the dinner table with your family is not the same language that you use in the office with your colleagues. But we're we're so used to switching from from one mode to another that we don't see it so much. How, how has it felt to become aware of that? Do you find an inclination to try and control it or make use of it uh, more consciously? I, I'm... I think uh, you know becoming aware of it uh, helps if the experience is you know in some sense distressing. You you really pay attention to things only when they distress you. You know if things are going well, no one really questions anything. Mm. Uh, so I, and, and and moving back and forth uh, these disruptions of oneself. You know as much as it seems very romantic, uh, living in multiple places and uh, having you know these various kinds of lives um it is i think it is disruptive also to just one's uh, narrative i think you know you're unable to have a coherent narrative um and i think uh, it it is part of one's self to be co- it, it's some sort of requirement a cognitive requirement that we seem to have to be coherent beings and uh, when these narratives start to fray at the edges it distresses you and so becoming aware of it i think is important and uh, yeah, and you know, we, we instinctively, without even sometimes thinking about it, we seek to be grounded. And, uh, and you know, when the grounding goes away for some reason, well, it does when you travel a lot, then being aware of the need for grounding. Why does the self want to be grounded? And what does it want to be grounded in? Whether it's the body or the larger culture or the physical geographical space, all of these things... Uh, you can start paying attention to that. I'm not saying just knowing and understanding it actually helps you deal with it, but at least uh, you become aware of it, and maybe you can take necessary actions to, to you know, deal with whatever arises at some point. So what do you feel is the the future of the science of the self? I, I was a medical journalist for many years, and I, I went to a conference once where uh, someone was explaining that the the DSM, the 
diagnostic and statistical manual that's used to diagnose mental disorders uh, was sort of thought of as a stopgap when it was originally proposed because everyone assumed that brain imaging would get us to the point where we understood everything about the brain and that that would happen very quickly. And obviously that hasn't happened. So where where is the science and the medicine of the the concept of the self going from here? Oh, that's a, that's a really big big question. It is. I, you know, I'm wondering whether I'm even qualified to answer that. I'll just take a sort of a stab at it, uh, w- you know, without claiming to, you know, have an authoritative answer. I think um, an over reliance on brain imaging worries me because, uh, you know, if you if you think of any of these conditions, like say schizophrenia, you you take uh, scans of people who are in their 20s and 30s and you say, oh, okay, uh, I have seen the differences in the brain uh, uh, brains of people with schizophrenia compared to, you know, healthy controls. And so that must be the cause of schizophrenia. And that's kind of a very reductionist approach to understanding uh, a condition. And uh, because these brain scans are not really establishing causation, they are establishing correlations, and and that's something that we really need to understand. And the more we understand the self um, scientifically, and you know, uh, it's becoming clear that it's not, you know, it's it's very strongly influenced by everything around you, uh, the, especially the narrative part, the cognitive conceptual part of ourselves are very strongly influenced by the broader culture that we are part of. And uh, establishing causation would need a, need us to look at, you know, how we grow up and the, the surroundings that we grow up in and how the culture reacts to, say, a person with schizophrenia because that will have an impact on the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you can have, you know, worldwide the incidence of schizophrenia is pretty much the same, 1% to 2% of the population, but... Uh, the, the outcome in terms of how much a person suffers, you know, uh, you know, once they have schizophrenia, is kind of slightly different, and and it means understanding the disorder in the context of the culture that it appears in. And so, I'm not sure just scanning brains and knowing everything about the brain would would be the answer to that. So what's next on your writing agenda? You've gone to the edges of space and you've gone into the the depths of the consciousness. So where do you go from there? Um, I mean, there's another uh, another field that interests me a lot, which is quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. uh, the the physics of the very small. And there's there's something there that just intrigues me immensely. Uh, and I'm still wondering about you know how one gets into telling a story about something about quantum mechanics that is again unique and different from all the wonderful books that are already out there. So that's something on my mind, um, and I suspect. Uh, as someone interested in physics and neuroscience, there's, it may not happen in uh, my lifetime, but I would imagine it, there will come a point where we're going to be talking about the physics of consciousness, because uh, it, 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 they will have to meet somewhere. Uh, somewhere we'll need uh, to understand consciousness within our physical laws, uh, if that's going to be possible. Uh, and that intrigues me, but I, I don't know. I mean, there's not enough science at this point to write about it. So, but uh, one can imagine that if that ever happened, that would be fascinating. What a what a great phrase! The physics of consciousness. I mean, that's that is the title of the bestseller from the year 2075. 
Yeah, that's why I said it won't happen in my lifetime. <laughs> what a fascinating idea. I've been talking with Anil Ananthaswamy, and you can find his book, The Man Who Wasn't There, in stores right now. Anil, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week as we resume our regular broadcast schedule. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 